Do you remember what you were like when you were young? Maybe your younger self was two years ago, 20 years ago, or maybe many more than that. How would you describe yourself? And how different is it than how you would describe yourself now? I think of my elementary and middle school version of Leah. And if I'm honest, I don't see a person so foreign from who I am today. There are some tendencies I had way back then that I notice within myself even today. For instance, my uncanny ability to be struck with all the motivation in the world to clean my desk and rearrange my entire room at the exact moment that I should be sitting down to start my homework. Anyone else have that tendency? Well, this trait has served me well when it comes to the upkeep of the spaces I spend time in, but there are some ways that this trait has not served me well. For one, I've had a lot of late and stressful nights paying for my procrastination, especially as I got into high school and college. But over the years, I've noticed this tendency of mine to have more pervasive effects on my life. Distractions or reasons come up for me to delay a decision. Anything from what to order for lunch to major decisions like college, career, marriage. With lots of self-reflection, and I should add therapy over the years, I've found I suffer from what I've heard call the vicious cycle of the three Ps, perfection, procrastination, and paralysis. This is not a diagnosis in the DSM in case you were wondering, but it turns out there's a reason behind the procrastination. I suffer from procrastinating just about anything that matters to me because I need whatever I'm trying to do to be perfect. And because nothing's perfect in the moment, I hold out for the chance that something might be perfect in the future, hence the procrastination. But the thing about perfection is that it's all subjective, right? It's based on whatever expectation we have in our head of how something's supposed to be or go. And the problem is our expectations almost never match reality. And so perfect almost never comes, which perpetuates the procrastination and brings us to the deadly third P, paralysis. For me, paralysis then tends to trigger self-loathing, which, which starts the cycle all over again. Because in my lack of perfection, I procrastinate a way forward out of my paralysis and get stuck in the cycle. Now, when it comes to paralysis, things like deadlines are helpful for me because when time starts running out on waiting for perfect to plop into my lap, the reality of a deadline kicks in and I'm forced to execute or decide however far from perfect it may be. But there's some things in life that don't have built-in deadlines, essential aspects of life, like friendships, the way that we might be prompted to advocate for someone, make a bold career change, or go out of our way to spend time with family, friends, neighbors, or a stranger. In other words, so many of the key ingredients of life. So here's what I've learned. The three Ps prevents me from living the most vital P of all, presence. Perfection, procrastination, paralysis, all prevent us from being present to the life in front of us. It's hard to be present when we're tied up worrying about the way something in our life isn't living up to the expectations that we had for it. While I know not all of us are perfectionists, I do believe we all have some standard or expectations that we're pursuing or that drive us. Maybe it's beauty, justice, excellence, innovation, loyalty, adventure, decisiveness, peace, order, or relational fulfillment. There's countless personality assessments out there that suggest that while we all have different goals that drive us, there is something that drives us. 
So what were you like when you were younger? I wonder if some of the tendencies you had might show you some of the things that drive you. But what happens when whatever drives us isn't realized? Over the years, I've had a mentor who's reminded me of this mantra. Stop worrying about being perfect. Just be present. I've held on to this mantra in work, in ministry, and relationships. A book actually came out a couple years ago entitled Present Over Perfect, and I thought someone had been recording my inner dialogue. But the idea of the book is learning to say no to perfection so you can say yes to presence. This year has been anything from perfect. I'm sure you've seen the many memes or articles joking about 2020 just needing to come to an end. And sometimes, let's just be real, we just need to turn the page on a chapter. But this year for me has exposed just how much I strive for things to be perfect and how that gets in the way of being present. Over these nine months, my husband and I have both been working full-time from home with our toddler. More recently, my mom has been coming up once a week and that's been a lifesaver to us. But beyond that, we've been juggling our own childcare. Our apartment's not very big, so we're constantly tripping over each other. And as a family, we love to travel, but that's obviously come to an abrupt stop. So many of Lake's milestones are celebrated by just us. In our defeat of this year, it's been hard for us to be present to this year. I cannot tell you how many hours we have spent collectively on Zillow, daydreaming about a bigger home, on YouTube channels, daydreaming about our next adventure, stressing about the lack of social interaction our daughter is getting, missing our friends, family, and on and on. It's so tempting to feel like this year just doesn't count, so you just want to put your head down and survive. But as we come to the end of the year, and as we journey our way to the manger this Advent season, I wonder if there's an invitation to me and to you to be present, to not just put our head down, to stop wasting time and energy trying to escape this moment or put off the things that are hard or important or matter most to a more optimal time in the future. If ever there was a story that celebrated presence in the midst of a moment that turned perfection on its head and shattered everyone's expectations, it's the original Christmas story. So today we're looking at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. We're going to start in the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a, a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So like a true historian, Luke situates this event in history. Now, there aren't records that actually show a census to be taken of the entire Roman world, but there are records of censuses being taken around this time, and it's certainly true that Augustus sought to set in motion an administrative decision that has effects as far out as Judea. And perhaps that's Luke's point, that this was a far-reaching decree that had direct effects on the main events of the story, much like this pandemic has found us and just about everyone else in this world. The point being, there's a census that has a direct impact on the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. So Luke continues in verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth into Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem and the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So enter Joseph, who only has been mentioned once 
so far up until this point. But now he steps in as a key person in the story. And Joseph, we learn, has connections to King David's genealogy. He's from Bethlehem. So he travels 90 miles home with his pregnant fiance. We aren't sure if Mary had to be present for this census or not. Some historians say Joseph's presence would have sufficed. Either way, Mary accompanies him. Perhaps it's because she was so close to giving birth, Joseph doesn't want to leave her behind. Or perhaps it was because Joseph didn't want to leave her because of the vulnerable position she was in as an unmarried pregnant woman. Take a look at this modern day depiction of Mary and Joseph traveling. This is an illustration by artist Everett Patterson entitled Jose y Maria. Patterson evocatively is trying to portray to a modern audience what it might have been like for Mary and Joseph if this story were to take place today. Two down and out, young parents-to-be, with no status, no wealth, trying to make this 90-mile journey. The artist included a wide vanishing perspective for the illustration. The result is what he says he occasionally calls the middle-class white people perspective. He describes it this way. Rather than feeling immersed in the scene, the viewer is looking at it as if from across the street or from the warmth and safety of his or her passing car. I have a small hope that this Christmas image will come to mind when we see other down and out people huddling outside of gas stations, reminding us that our Savior's parents and indeed Jesus himself were at one time similarly troubled. It brings some humanity to the Mary and Joseph story, doesn't it? And as an aside, the artist packs tons of biblical references into the scene. Notice the verse from the prophet Ezekiel and graffiti on the phone kiosk. And the way save more behind Mary's head looks more like Ave Maria. It's a cool portrayal that awakens us to the reality of this story and these people. So Mary and Joseph set out together for Bethlehem. And Luke continues in verse 6. While they were there, a time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So they arrive in Bethlehem. The baby's born, and what a simple and peaceful birth it sounded to be. So before giving birth to my first daughter, I read this as a magical moment, and surely it was and is. But if you've heard of birth stories or given birth stories before, while these moments are indeed filled with wonder, simplicity and peace aren't typically the words to describe a birth. Never mind one that's on the road, away from home, in a room that sounds less than ideal. In other words, not perfect. So the text tells us that Mary swaddled the baby herself, which wasn't typical. So Luke is drawing our attention to the loneliness of this birth. There's no family member, no midwife. And Jesus is placed in a manger or an animal trough. This tends to make us think of a barn or stable, and while it may have been, it's a bit more likely that they were in an area of the house where the animals slept, and perhaps specifically a very poor house where the family and animals shared the same roof. Okay, so as a newish mom who gave birth to my first daughter about 18 months ago, I have such a greater appreciation for the less than perfect circumstances in which Jesus is born. Just to give you an idea of how I prepared for my labor, remember I'm a perfectionist, I had a Pinterest board of all the items that were to be packed in our bag to bring to the birth center. Twinkle lights, oils to diffuse, coconut milk popsicles to snack on, and that's just the start of the list. Now I'll tell you that while I did bring along all these items, thinking that I could sort of manifest the kind of labor that I was hoping for, 
I should note, by the way, that these items were all collected and thrown into a bag at the last minute between contractions. Remember, also procrastinator. All my expectations for how this experience would go went completely out the window as my labor progressed. I ended up being transferred to the hospital, and I was in way too much of a zone to care about anything outside of bracing myself for the work my body was doing. It was one of the most challenging experiences of my life, but I had the luxury of experiencing it in a place that was safe and warm and comfortable and surrounded by a tribe of people to support me. And here's Mary, alone with Joseph, in an unfamiliar place, in circumstances that apart from Elizabeth, no one understood or believed. It's a scene a bit different than our typical nativity scenes depict. Here's a painting depicting the nativity scene just after the birth. It was painted in 1891 by Gary Melcher. One writer observes this from the piece. The angels have not arrived. There are no shepherds. Mary's too exhausted to notice the cold. Joseph is awestruck by the responsibility of being a father. Perhaps he's resigned to something far greater than himself. This feels a bit more true to how I imagine this moment. Alone, shocked, exhausted, cold. This is the context that God chooses to send his son. Obscurity, poverty, uncertainty, rejection. And yet, it's this very context that creates the fulfillment of the prophecy declared hundreds of years before this event. This is the story of the incarnation, of God being made flesh. Incarnation isn't a word really that's used in the Bible, but its idea is derived from the Bible's description of Jesus, especially in John 1.14 that tells us, and the word was made flesh. Incarnation therefore refers to God becoming a human being. And it turns out theologians throughout the centuries have pointed out the reality of the incarnation as one of the most important and powerful realities of the Christian tradition. As I think about that, if I were God, these are not the circumstances that I would choose to make my fleshly appearance into the world. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure I would choose to come in as a baby. Why not just skip that very vulnerable part of life and jump ahead into adulthood? Actually, why not just beam in around the time of the start of Jesus' ministry? Nothing really important seems to happen in the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And I mean, as I think about it, I guess if you go that far, it's really those three years of his ministry of public rejection, ending in final death and humiliation that were probably the worst, so maybe I'd skip that part too. But God doesn't skip any of it. That's the beauty of the Christmas story, of the Jesus story that Jesus comes onto the scene under very difficult circumstances as a tender baby. He's not born in particularly safe or comfortable conditions. His birth isn't witnessed or celebrated by elite or royal or even reputable people of the world. There is no pomp and circumstance to this story. Parker Palmer, one of my favorite writers, calls it the risk of the incarnation. It's a huge risk for Jesus to show up in the flesh, to show up as a human, and in the same way, I actually think it's a risk for us to show up as our human selves. Isn't it true that we tend to be more drawn to the sanitized version of our human selves? We share the good parts of our weekends with our colleagues on Monday morning. We talk about the happier things in life with the parents at the park or friends that we catch up with. We tell our parents our day was fine and nothing really happened. We tell ourselves the uncertainty and disruption of 2020 is only temporary. 
Now, I hope the pandemic is indeed temporary and will come to an end, but this year is teaching us that life is more uncertain and disruptive than we like to think. There's a Christmas carol we sing sometimes that's a bit of a departure from the typical hopeful or joyous carols. And the bleak midwinter was a, first a poem written in 1872 by the English poet Christina Rossetti. It actually wasn't set to music until the early 1900s. Here's how the poem begins. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. The setting is cold, raw, and real. This carol gives us a vivid depiction of the hardness of winter. Metaphorically, I think a lot of us have felt this way this year. It's perhaps noteworthy that Rossetti's life had many ups and downs. And while well-educated and steeped in the arts, the Rossetti family was not a stranger to hardship. They experienced physical and mental health issues that resulted in great financial hardship. Christina herself suffered from serious health issues on and off in her life. And on top of that, she also had three proposals for marriage that resulted in being broken off each time. So it's not a surprise that Rossetti draws out the bleakness of the original Christmas story that we tend to overlook. Her life experience didn't let her over-triumphalize the story. The carol goes on. In the bleak midwinter, long, long ago, angels and archangels may have traveled there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. As one writer observes, the carol doesn't shout from the rooftops about Christmas cheer. Instead, it focuses on the simplest yet truest gift of all, love. Jesus may have arrived in bleak circumstances, and though there may have been some extraordinary signs and wonders, it's the love of a young mother and the arrival of this baby that's the centerpiece of the story. What can I give him, she asks. Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him? So Mary watches these gifts being brought to her newborn baby, and here she is with Joseph. They have very little worldly resources. They have very little time to prepare for the arrival of this baby. Never mind prepare for the responsibility of raising a child who would grow to be the Messiah, the deliverer of all of Israel. What can she possibly bring? And then the carol ends with this. But what can I give him? Give him my heart. This points to an incredibly important line at the end of the birth story. So the shepherds are told of the birth of the baby. They travel to see Jesus lying in a manger, and the text picks up in verse 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. In the face of everything she had just endured, she lived through nine months of potential ridicule and shame as she walked around with a growing belly and no husband to justify such a reality. In the face of what have, must have felt like total inadequacy for all that had happened and all that would come, in the face of the uncertainty of the future, never mind the uncertainty of whatever they were going to do next, Mary chose presence. She recognized God's presence in this amazing and terrifying moment that was happening before her, and all that was promised to her about her son was being confirmed. 
She treasures God's faithfulness. Words can't give justice to all that she's experiencing. Only the wordless swelling of her heart can adequately capture the undeniable presence of God in her life and in the world. This God has captured her heart. Her inmost self is present to this moment. In these less than perfect circumstances, God has come. The way God shows up in the world in extraordinary and extraordinarily ordinary circumstances and the way that Mary responds gives us an idea of what our invitation might be this Christmas. I actually remember going home for Christmas one year while I was in college. My parents were divorced when I was young, so I grew up with my mom, but around middle school, I started seeing my dad more. Now, when holidays came around, we had to negotiate, my mom and I, how to share time throughout the season, which tended to result in some form of a fight. So this fight was about that, but it wasn't just about that year, it was about all the years. So it's Christmas morning, and it doesn't take long for this fight between my mom and I to emerge. Who knows who said what to trigger what? But there we are, presents still unwrapped under the tree, and we are both angry and crying and trying so hard to get the other person to understand where we're coming from. Feeling completely hopeless on how to resolve this, I dramatically grab my car keys, hop in my car, and drive away. Somehow through the tears, I found my way to a waterfront, parked my car, and just sat there pleading with God for some kind of miracle. I ended up writing down the thoughts that were swirling in my head, and I was writing them in the form of a bullet-pointed letter to my dad. I couldn't put it off anymore. I had worked so hard all those years to keep the peace. And I think in my desire for things just to be okay, I just kept acting like everything was okay. But they weren't. And that's actually what my mom was trying to get me to see that morning. So with a pit in my stomach and a shaky hand, I picked up the phone and called my dad. He had to know what was going on behind the scenes, and that as much as I wanted things to be normal amongst us all, they just weren't. And me pretending they were, pushing aside the things that needed to be said or burdens that needed to be shared, wasn't making things go away. The conversation that morning actually ended up being the start of a several-year road to healing amongst my family. Things are not perfect, even today, and those years of counseling and naming reality was not easy. But things started changing once I stopped trying so hard to make everything okay, to try to pretend that things were perfect. In her book, Present Over Perfect, Shauna Nyquist shares that change often starts with a breaking point. She says, no one ever changes until the pain level gets high enough, something becomes broken beyond repair, too heavy to carry, in the words of recovery movement, unmanageable. In my case, it was this inciting incident Christmas morning that began to shake loose the vicious cycle of the three Ps playing out in my family dynamics. The three Ps had led me to a particular way of coping that I was starting to realize, escape. Escapism is a tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities. And that's what I learned was kind of going on for me all those years ago when I learned to clean my room when I had homework looming over my head. And that same tendency was tempting me to play itself out in that moment, that Christmas morning. My impulse was telling me to just hit the eject button and not deal with the whole ordeal. And isn't that what we all wanna do in the face of something hard or uncertain or scary? Escape. Escape can actually be a form of a drug. And that's one of the chief problems with drugs. But listen to what Nyquist points out. You can make a drug a way to anesthetize yourself out of anything 
working out, binge watching TV, working, having sex, shopping, volunteering, cleaning, dieting, any of those things can keep you from feeling pain for a while, that's what drugs do, and used like a drug, over time, shopping or TV or work or whatever will make you less and less able to connect to the things that matter, like your own heart and the people you love. That's another thing drugs do. They isolate you. Maybe you're living alone and your drug is anything that fills the silence. Or maybe you're a parent and you're just counting the hours until bedtime or the end of high school. Maybe you're an empty nester counting the days between visits with your kids or lost in the memories of the past. Or maybe you're in a stage of life where you're longing for a future time when you're more free, more independent, travel the world, being financially stable or married. Or maybe your days are so full you don't let yourself stop and you tell yourself you have no more time to give. We can get stuck in the noise, in the past, in the future, in the busyness, in ourselves, and we can miss what's right in front of us, missing the things that matter most. So what does it look like for you to show up and be present this Christmas? To reach out to those you've lost touch with or to someone you know is hurting or lonely? It doesn't need to be anything profound or perfect, just a show of presence. Because here's the heart of the matter. When we're not present to the moment, however hard it might be, we're not present to one another, to God or to ourselves. Being present connects us. And that's exactly why God shows up in the flesh, in this imperfect world. He shows up to be present to us, to connect to us and connect us to each other. If you're looking for a main point, here it is. We find comfort and joy in God's presence when we are present to this moment. Choosing to be present in the midst of imperfect is a risk. We risk when we embrace the silence, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We risk when we reach out, even though we don't feel like we have the right words. We risk when we set up a FaceTime call, even though it's awkward and different than how we're used to connecting. We risk when we embrace this moment with all the screaming or mess or talk back or whatever else. We risk when we go out of our way for someone, even though they look or talk or act different from us. God doesn't skip out on the hard moments or fast forward to the easier moments of life or any moment. In fact, God is a God who is especially familiar with the hard moments. The big idea of Luke's gospel is that God is a God who is with the hurting and vulnerable and oppressed. This is why he tells the birth story the way he does. From the beginning of Jesus' presence on earth, the message is loud and clear. God isn't a God to the perfect. God is a God for and to the imperfect, for the down and out, for those who may be experiencing the bleakness of life. But the Christmas story teaches us that comfort and joy can be found in each moment because God is present there. Is God trying to meet you in a hard moment right now? Or is God prompting you to risk being present to someone else in their hard moment? Well, I wanna give us a few moments here as we close to invite God to speak into these questions by walking you through a prayer of examine. This examine invites you to explore the ways in which you are present and the ways in which you may have been absent to the moments of the last 24 hours. So over the next couple minutes, I'll walk you through with some prompts. And as we prepare, I invite you to get in a comfortable position, 
Let your muscles relax. Let your mind begin to quiet down. Close your eyes or set your eyes somewhere softly in whatever space you're in. Take a deep breath and ask God to make his presence known around and in you. So I'll give you about 10 seconds and then I'll begin. God calls us to be fully present to the moment at hand, but so often we're lost in another world, lost in the past, lost in the future, lost in our broodings, lost in our joys, our fears, our expectations, our judgments. Or perhaps we just get lost in the latest silly game on our smartphone while someone or some task needs our full attention. As I enter in a few moments of quiet, I begin in gratitude, thanking God for one or two of the blessings big and small, that I received in the past 24 hours. Looking over the past 24 hours, I asked God to show me the moments when I was not fully present when I became distracted or lost in my own thoughts or sought some form of escape while the moment called for my full attention. I asked God to show me the ill effects of my absence and to show me how much better things could have gone had I been fully present. I speak with God about those moments. I ask God for advice, healing, and forgiveness. As I look over the past 24 hours, I also recognize the grace-filled moments when I was fully present to the moment. Perhaps it was a moment when someone really needed a listening ear or a helping hand, and I had the grace to step in. Perhaps it was a difficult moment or a complicated task, and I had the grace to focus really well on the situation. I pause and give thanks to God for those grace-filled moments. I now look to the next 24 hours before me. What moment could really use my full attention? In which moment may I be tempted to get lost in thought or lost in some escape or diversion? I speak with God about the concrete moment that might challenge my full presence. God, we ask that you would meet us today. Give us the courage to risk showing up to the moments and people and places that are messy and hard and imperfect because that is where you are most acquainted. May you teach us to love as you have loved 
and give us the courage to show up with our heart. Amen.